Hi, I'm Vanessa, and I look after Evie Kids. Um, today we're reading from Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 37. If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand and someone will pass you one. If you don't own a Bible, it's yours to keep. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God will come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. No one will say, Look here or there, for you see, the kingdom of God is among you. Then he told the disciples, The days are coming when you will will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you won't see it. They will say to you, Look there or look here. Don't follow or run after them. For as the lightning flashes from horizon to horizon and lights up the sky, so the Son of Man will be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People went on eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. It will be the same as it was in the days of Lot. People went on eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. But on the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be like that on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, a man on the housetop whose belongings are in the house must not come down to get them. Likewise, the man who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to make his life secure will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Two will be in a field. One will be taken and the other will be left. Where, Lord? They asked him. He said to them, where the corpse is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Well, good evening, everyone. Again, it's great to be with you, and it is a real privilege to open God's Word. If you have the Bible open there, I encourage you to just keep it open to Luke chapter 17. We're going to be looking straight down through that passage tonight. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. There is, I've been reading with my kids. So I have two kids, and I've been reading them through with my kids. One of them is, we just finished The Magician's Nephew, which is the first one, and we're about to get into The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But I remember watching um, or reading the books, if you've seen the movies, there's this point in time where after Aslan the lion, who is sort of the Christ figure of the story, uh, leaves Narnia for a season, the children grow up, and it seems as though the magic is gone. And they look back over time and history, and there's sort of whispers of this name of Aslan. But people are kind of like, what is that story? Was it real? Did he ever really come Is there really magic? Is he ever coming back? Was he really ever here? I mean, what is this story? It wasn't long. I mean, it might have been some years. I'm not sure. 
Now, I work as a Bible college, theological college lecturer. So my job is to teach the Bible and teach theology um, five, six, seven days a week, depending on the week. And I want to tell you, I think, personally, one of the hardest things about life is the time that we live in. We live in in-between times. Now, I don't know if you find this a struggle, but the question for us as Christians is, Christ, Jesus himself, lived 2,000 years ago. What does that man's life back then, 2,000 years ago, actually mean for us now in the 21st century? I mean, that guy's ancient. I mean, quite literally, he's ancient. Was he real? What's his name? We sort of whisper it like, Jesus, yeah, okay, something about him. I've heard some stories. They sound a bit like fairy tales. Were they real? Was he real 2,000 years ago? And he said he was coming again. Didn't his disciples think it was going to happen soon? I mean, what year is it now? Almost 2,000 years have passed, and are we still waiting? Is he really coming Surely you face these tensions. I mean, I face them as a lecturer in theology. I have to think about these things because I've given all of my life to teaching people about this man, Jesus, from 2,000 years ago. In fact, I say before then, from all time, this man. And I'm telling people every day, and I hope you believe every day, that that man then means something for you now and especially for something for you in the future. But what does it mean? Tonight we get to come and consider what it is to think about the kingdom of God. And there are two groups of people that Jesus addresses in this time in Luke chapter 17. And we're going to look at each of these groups of people and what he teaches us about the kingdom through a series of questions. I have two points for you tonight. The first is that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. That is, Jesus' kingdom has been inaugurated. I'll explain that word to you in a minute if it sounds confusing. I don't think it'll be confusing for any of you. The second point is that the kingdom of God has not yet been consummated. Jesus' kingdom has not yet been consummated. If I could put it quite simply, Jesus' kingdom already is. And Jesus' kingdom is not yet We're going to explain this as we go through the text. So first, we see that Jesus' kingdom has been inaugurated. What do I mean by the word inauguration? I mean, if you follow American politics, which it's almost impossible not to do if you read any major news distributor these days, I've come away from America to Australia um, and still read about American politics and headlines every day. But we recently had the inauguration of Donald Trump. Right, an occasion that led many Americans to New Zealand. You're welcome. Uh, your population's booming with American uh, people coming here to live in your beautiful land. Uh, no more to be said there. Anyways, the inauguration is the beginning of the presidency, right? But here the inauguration is the beginning of Jesus' kingdom. And in this text, I think it quite clearly teaches that the kingdom has begun. The kingdom has begun. Look with me down at verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. So they're asking a when question there. When will this kingdom come? When will God's kingdom come? He answered them. 
kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The Pharisees ask a question that's quite simple. Where, sorry, excuse me, when is the kingdom of God? When will it be? When will it come? And Luke gives this question at a very strange and interesting place in his storyline. Because as you would have heard last week when you came to church, Jesus has just healed 10 lepers. 10 people with a terrible, terrible skin disease. I mean, their skin is rotting. And Jesus, with a word, heals them. Go show yourself to the priests. And as they get up to go, their skin is better. Now, I don't know how many of you have seen that happen. Not me. Not me. How many Pharisees would have seen that happen in Jesus' day? How many of the religious leaders would have seen somebody just say, you know, be well, and they're well? This happened for me when I was in um, Honduras once. I remember seeing a man with crippled legs. And you read about these things in the Bible. This crippled man that's healed. Jesus, you know, tells him to stand up and take his mat and walk. And I remember seeing a man with physically mangled legs. His legs looked like they were bent up and shriveled down at the thing. And he had these metal braces around him. And he was sitting begging on the side of the road with his kids. I mean, it was such a moving and terrible thing to see. And he was a smiley and lovely guy. I just remember Jesus telling somebody like that, get up. And his legs would just work. We don't see that happening. And the Pharisees have the nerve to ask Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? When will the kingdom of God be? It's a very strange thing in this context. How could they not have seen? Well, rather than answering their when question directly, Jesus tells them how. The kingdom is not coming in such a way that its rise can be observed, Jesus answers. It's not coming in a way that its rise can be observed. The Pharisees had expected something far different than what actually was. They didn't really get the kingdom. So what they thought was going to be happening with the kingdom wasn't what was happening at all. The kingdom wasn't going to come in a way that they thought it would. I wonder what you think about when you think of the kingdom of God. How do you think the kingdom of God will come? What do you think about when you think of the kingdom of God today? Is it here? Do you know what it looks like? Do you know how to bring it? I mean, this is a question that's actually been sought to be answered all throughout history. Some people have really tried to do this politically. So they raise a mighty sword and they say, Jesus is the king, bow down. And they conquer nations. But we're setting up an empire for Jesus. We're establishing his reign. And terrible atrocities have been carried out this way. Other people have thought about, what about society's concerns? What about the ways that uh, people suffer injustices? What if we can just work these things out and bring social justice, care for the poor, food for people's mouths, roofs over people's heads, equality, peace? 
And so people pursue the kingdom in society. Other people try to retreat from society. And they try to set up these holy huddles, these centers, these villages elsewhere where people can dwell together under the Lord's common reign. But what does it mean for the kingdom to come? What are we to think of the kingdom? Jesus says to the Pharisees, the kingdom is in the midst of you. This is a very difficult passage. I mean, what does it mean? What he really says here is the kingdom is in you. The kingdom is within you. What does it mean to say the kingdom is within you? Well, I think the best way for us to understand this is this. The kingdom is standing right before them. Because they are looking at the king. When they see Jesus, they see the king of the kingdom. And therefore, the kingdom is in their midst. If the Pharisees could just see. I mean, they were spiritually blind. If they could just see Jesus. They would have known him to be the king of God's kingdom. What should we make of this section? It's an interesting section here. Jesus doesn't really deal with the Pharisees' questions at all. Not directly, at least. That's because I think he knew their blindness. He knew that even if I told them about the kingdom, they wouldn't understand. They haven't actually received me as the king. What Jesus wants them and his disciples to realize is that the kingdom began to break into the world with power when he came to the earth. The kingdom is within you. They were staring at it. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus would have rebuked them or shown them they're not really good at seeing the signs. He does this elsewhere in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 12, you don't have to turn there. Luke chapter 12, verse 54, Jesus rebuked the the people saying this. He said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower's coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, oh, there will be a scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky. but Why do you not know how to interpret the present time? You see, they can go out and look at a cloud in the sky and say, going to be rain today. They can feel the wind and think, oh, some severe heat is coming. It's going to get warm. And they see 10 lepers healed. They see blind people receiving their sight. They see mangled legs being fixed up. And they can't tell the time. Jesus is showing them time and again and again and again that he is the king. He has authority like no other. He has power like no other. And what's more is beyond even just his miraculous deeds are his wonderful words. He is telling people the words of life. As people see Jesus, they see God himself. And the Pharisees say, when will the kingdom of God come? times for the Pharisees couldn't have been clearer. 
And the challenge for us is to think about the kingdom today. How is it that the kingdom is in our midst? I mean, is it still in our midst? Jesus left the earth 2,000 years ago. So when he's saying, here I am standing here, is the kingdom still now? I would say absolutely. Absolutely. Why? Because Jesus reigns. Jesus is the king and Jesus has ascended to his throne. We're going to talk about that more in just a few minutes. But his kingdom has been inaugurated. It has begun. And now for those of us who trust in Jesus, he rules and reigns over our hearts and lives. Every day as we open his word and his spirit leads us deeper into that truth. Every time we congregate like this as his people. And we meet in his name. We give great expression to his heavenly rule over us. He's working powerfully in us. He's working to bring us from death to life. It's a wonderful truth. The kingdom has indeed begun. And we are privileged to be called kingdom citizens, those who belong to Jesus. This brings us to our second point. Jesus explains that the kingdom is still coming. The kingdom is already, but the kingdom is not yet. It may have been inaugurated, but it has not been consummated. Now, I used a political analogy a minute ago talking about Donald Trump and uh, his inauguration. But consummation really is probably much more of of a marriage analogy You don't need to think about that too much. But what I mean by that is uh, Jesus is trying to say that I've started something with you. I have committed myself to you in the full. You know, he put a ring on it. Okay. And he's saying, I love you. I care for you. In fact, I'm going to get someplace ready for us to be together. When I come back, you'll be mine. One of the great pictures that the Bible uses for Jesus is of a groom. And one of the great pictures that God uses for his people in the Bible is a bride. And the time now is declared to be a time of preparation. Where Jesus' bride is being made ready for their groom. When they will be perfectly united forever. A great wedding ceremony. That's the consummation that we're talking about when we talk about the consummation of the kingdom. So having addressed the spiritually blind Pharisees, Jesus now turns to the disciples in verse 22. Look with me down at these verses. The Pharisees had asked the disciples about when the kingdom would be. Now Jesus tells his disciples a little bit about when his kingdom will come. Look at verse 22. He said to the disciples... The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they'll say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things. And be rejected by this generation. Jesus declares to the disciples that a day is coming when they will desperately desire to see the days of the Son of Man. They will so badly want it, but they won't see it. 
Now, this is important to notice that it is not meant to discourage the disciples in saying, there's going to be a day you're looking for me, but you're not going to find me. What he's trying to do is actually encourage them. He's trying to say, there's a lot of mess that's going to happen. False signs are going to be declared. In fact, I don't know if you noticed the parallel. What are the, what are the um, Pharisees ask for? They ask for signs. And Jesus says, it's not going to be with signs of, look, here it is, or there. Some people are going to tell you, look, here it is, or there. And they're false. Don't listen to them. Jesus is saying, you need to wait patiently. People are going to tell you wrong things, but I am indeed coming. And when I come, it's going to be like lightning flashing. Lighting up the entire sky. It will be unmissable. And it will be unmistakable. Jesus uses this opportunity to speak a bit more about how his coming will be. He talks about the how now. And he's, we've seen already that when he comes and his kingdom is finally realized, it's going to be obvious. First, however, Jesus tells us that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected. This is at the heart of what establishes the kingdom and the king's authority and rule. But this is a strange message. I don't know if you find it strange. We get to the heart of the Christian message here, but I also think this is where the Christian message seems absolutely foolish. Jesus says, I'm the king, I'm setting up my kingdom, and everybody, hold your breath, I'm going to die. So get ready, just keep following me, but I'm about to die, okay? Just keep following me, but I'm about to die. What confidence would you have? What confidence would you have if somebody saying, in order for me to establish my rightful rule, my rightful kingdom reign, my rightful kingdom, in order for me to do that, I have to suffer and be rejected. He really tells you something about the nature of Jesus' kingdom. Jesus Christ, God's Son, the great King, needed to die. The one who lived his life perfectly under God, the only person ever, in fact, to live his life in full obedience to God, Gave his life for all who had been radically disobedient. And in fact, didn't even care about him. Jesus had to die. It seems so strange to the outsiders looking in. But I'm so encouraged. I remember Paul's words that the word of the cross is foolishness. It's absolute folly. It's the kind of thing that just turns the logic of the world upside down. In fact, that's what Paul says. The word of the cross is folly for those who are perishing. Those who are blind, trapped in their sin. Worldly. But it's the power of God for salvation for those who believe. God chose the weak things to shame the strong. The foolish things. To shame the wise. God's mighty king had to establish his rule and his reign by his death. 
His death defeated death. His death defeated sin. His death defeated the devil. So you can imagine what power this actually is when a king can put away all of his greatest enemies in one blow. Death. Sin. The devil. No longer ever to be a threat again to those who are in Christ. They've been conquered. And what's wonderful is God was so pleased to raise his son from the dead. Jesus came through death into new life. And as God raised him, he seated him in the highest places. Above every name that is named. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that he is Lord. Christ has ascended to the highest place and is now enthroned in heaven. We don't see him. But he's reigning. He is reigning as the king. And he's going to come back. And this is what Jesus turns to here in this story. He gives us a couple of uh, illustrations here. First of all, before we look at these, I want to just draw a couple of points here of what comfort this would provide for the disciples, by the way. If, if the disciples are following Jesus and he's about to go to his death, what would they be thinking? Jesus says, this is all part of the plan. This is all part of the plan. The kingdom is still coming. Trust this. And the disciples today, you, me, those of us who follow Christ, don't be alarmed the world hated Jesus. They rejected him. Don't be surprised when the world hates and rejects you for following him. Don't be surprised when the world seems so offended that you could believe that. Absolutely. Where else are we to go when Jesus has the words of life? He's still coming. Here's two examples that Jesus gives of the times of what his day will be. When the day of the Son of Man comes, it will be like, first of all, the days of Noah. I don't know how many of you grew up in Sunday school or have read the Old Testament well. I suspect some of you are vaguely familiar with Noah's Ark and the flood. If you're not, that's okay. There was a man named Noah. He lived in a time that God described as this. Every intention of the hearts of man were evil always. That's a description for you. God looks out at the world. Every intention of the hearts of man were evil always. And what does God say? Earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. Can't imagine what that would look like. Probably looked a lot like what we know today, I'm guessing. Maybe radically worse. I don't know. But God says, I'm going to destroy the world. But Noah found favor in God's eyes. And God decided that he would save Noah, his family, and two of every kind of animal. And he commissioned Noah to build a boat. A big, giant ark. And how was it in those days, do you think? What was happening with those people? 
Everything was very normal. Normal. They're eating, drinking, marrying. They're living life as if life is just life. As if life is all that matters. And I think what really happened was they forgot that there was a God whom all of their life was meant to be oriented to. A God who they were meant to be following obediently, lovingly. A creator who had made them and they were living as if it was just the creation. Evil intentions in their heart always. And God says, I'm going to judge the world. And how does he do it? No. People are out and they just start feeling a little rain on their heads. The rain starts coming down. And the rain keeps coming down. And the rain doesn't stop until they drowned. The waters rose because of their wickedness. And again, Jesus tells them about Lot, a descendant of Noah a few generations later. He says in verse 28, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating, drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the son of man is revealed. Lot, a descendant of Noah, lived in a city there, Sodom and Gomorrah. There were cities nearby. And Abraham, Father Abraham, for those of you who are familiar with the stories as well, in Genesis, Abraham pleads with God as God is looking out over the valley and is preparing to judge again another wicked place. A place where people were filled with unrighteousness. The whole city was filled with unrighteousness. So God decides that he's going to destroy the city. And make an end to the wickedness there. But Abraham, a, God, a person that God had chosen, pleads with God. And through a series of almost bargains, talking God down. A bit like a car salesman, you know. Can we go a little lower, a little lower? How about this low? I mean, God goes low. He says, if there's ten people in that city who are righteous, I'll leave it. And as these angels go down into the city, God's messengers, the men of the city seek them out to molest them. There are not ten righteous people in the city. And the angels go to Lot and they say, get out of here. Take your family and go. Destruction's coming. Go and do not look back. God is about to rain down fire and sulfur. I mean, you can picture it. You have volcanoes around here, right? It's like a volcanic eruption just raining down lava on this city to just absolutely obliterate it. Because they were so wicked. Yet God chose to save Lot and his family. Jesus says, when he comes, it will be as in that day. Well, God chose for Noah to bring water to rain. 
God chose for Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah to bring fire and sulfur. Jesus tells us a few more stories here about two others. Places of work. He gives us another clue of what it's going to be like. A housetop and a field. And he says, you're going to be up on top of your house. When the Son of Man comes, don't go inside to get things. There's no time. Just get out and flee. Or you're going to be out working in the field. Just don't look back. Get going because it's going to be sudden and devastating. There isn't time to turn back and look. And here Jesus gives the one command in the passage that I think stands out most. Look at verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. That's the command. Remember Lot's wife. What did Lot's wife do? Well, as Lot was being taken out of Sodom and Gomorrah, before the fire rains down on the city, they said, don't look back. It is going to be devastating. Don't, don't turn around. Just go. Lot's wife, in disobedience or disbelief or an attachment to that particular place, or people turns around and turns into a pillar of salt. It was the end of her life. She didn't take God at his word. And here Jesus follows on this verse in verse 34 or 33. And he says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. Jesus is saying, when you follow him, you don't look back on the old life. You don't turn around and go back to these things that were in the past. It's too urgent. His coming will be too sudden. His judgment will be far too severe. You go forward in what he's called you to and you get out of that place. The day is coming. A few more clues. Two everyday sittings, a bed and a kitchen. Well, really, two people lying in bed. One person taken out of the bed, suddenly gone. Other two women grinding at the mill. I call it the kitchen because that's probably something like a kitchen then. Working in the kitchen, baking up some bread. One gone. Unexpected and quick. Jesus interrupts very everyday life things. And in his judgment, one is delivered and one remains. I had a terrible plank, prank played on me. Actually, I loved it. Um, this last week, some of my students were here sitting around the room. I'm staring at a few of them waving at me. Yep. Kisses to you. Yep. Uh, they pranked me when I was teaching their class on the end times. Right. And um, I just went out. They were doing some group work, and I went out to have a have a break. And uh, I came back in, and it's just empty. No students except for one who's just sitting like this. And oh, hey, and clothes strewn across chairs as if they had just vaporized, right? <laughs> but as I came in the room, brass instruments playing. They didn't have a trumpet, so it was a trombone, and it was this loud trombone playing through the building. I mean, other classes are going on. You know, the nerve of these students, right? 
they're blaring this trombone. And it's as if all of them have been just taken away. And I was left behind with this other poor guy. Um, not you, man. Sorry. But uh, it was great. It really warmed my heart. And I found them around the corner uh, out on the street. And they got me good. And it was lovely. That's sort of what's being pictured here. But I don't think that's what Jesus means. I think what Jesus is actually picturing for people is that something is going to happen so unexpectedly, so in the middle of everyday life things that you would be doing, sleeping, baking bread, working at the mill, with your friends. And Jesus is going to deliver people from judgment in that quick instant, unexpectedly. Just like Noah In that day, they weren't expecting it. God delivers them in a boat. Just like Lot. They weren't expecting it. The angels snatched them out of that city and pulled them away from just devastation. And for us, Christ is coming to deliver us from judgment when we trust in him. And it's going to be sudden. Why do we have this section Well, it's to remind us of what we've just seen. Life goes on as usual. It did for them then. It does for us now in the 21st century. Life goes on. I mean, you go to uni, you study, you go to work and you do your shift work or you go and work at your salary job or you sit and care for your kids. You have lunch. You go to bed. You check Facebook. You do whatever it is that you're doing and life goes on as usual. People continue living in unrighteousness and wickedness. In fact, oftentimes that amounts to people being very, very disrespectful to what you believe. Very angry. Very hostile towards what you believe. It's not uncommon. It's not unexpected. Jesus is telling this is what you should expect. People are going to carry on with no regard for God. But guess what? Jesus will come. He will come. 2,000 years? Yes. He's still coming. You can be so easily fooled that... Am I really doing this for good? I mean, am I really in the right here? Am I believing well? Is it worth it? Absolutely. Because there is no other way for us to be redeemed from our sins. There's no other way for us to have eternal peace with God. Therefore, fix your eyes on him in great anticipation and readiness for his coming. Well, just finally and quickly, there's this last verse that I think is very strange. Verse 37. They said to him, this is the disciples, they said to him, where, Lord? It's a where question now. It's a bit surprising after all that Jesus has been telling them. Suddenly they say, where is this going to happen? Jesus said, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. I'm not going to bore you with every theory about what that actually means. 
There's a lot of people that have thought differently about these things, okay? It's a weird, weird verse. But I don't think it's that weird if we just read it right on from what we've been talking about. It's going to be unmistakable. When Jesus comes to judge, there will be no question about what's happened. There'll be no question about what's happening. This is a very severe warning for those who don't know Jesus. The days of Noah, when water rained down from heaven and flooded the earth. The days of Lot, when fire and sulfur rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah and devastated that place, wiped it off the face of the earth. We're just foreshadowing what is coming at the day of Christ. When he comes, it's going to be unmistakable. But this really isn't meant to be just a strong warning and rebuke for those that are outside of Christ. This is actually supposed to be a great comfort for us who are believers. If you're in Christ today, hear this. And if you're not in Christ today, can I just encourage you? If you've not trusted Jesus, consider this. What will you do with your sin? Jesus offers free pardon. He says, trust me. I take your sin. Follow me. I'm the king. Listen to my words. They're words of life. I give it to you freely. Come unto me. And when you follow Jesus, this is the promise. He is coming. And he's coming for us. He's coming to bring great deliverance from all of wickedness and unrighteousness. He's coming to put an end to it once and for all. He's coming to judge the world and its evil. But now is a day where he's patiently waiting. Now is a day of salvation. Now is a day for us to trust Christ and wait for him. And for us to tell of the good news. To call many others unto new life in him. It's easy for us to think 2,000 years after Christ. That things are just kind of getting on. It's easy to live with no regard for God. It's easy to ask, is he coming? He most certainly is. He's promised it and his promises are true. Let's wait with great expectation. Let's be found well prepared and let's honor him as our great king. Christ's kingdom has been inaugurated. It is already. But his kingdom has not yet been consummated. It is not yet. He will come for us and we should pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would forgive us for the times that we get too attached to this world, too concerned by worldly cares and sorrows and forget our heavenly hope in Christ, that our great king reigns victorious over sin and death and the devil. And yet, Lord, these things still plague us. 
we still battle against sin. We still face physical death. And we still know the deception that the devil works in our hearts and lives at different times. So we pray that you'd protect us and keep us. We long for the day when Christ will come to fully and finally judge all evil. But we thank you for your patience now because it is the day of salvation. Help us, Lord, to fix our eyes on Christ who is seated in heaven above and to trust in him where our hope is held and to live for him every day. In Jesus' name, amen.